Welcome to Governmental Astrology. I'm Linda Rowe. Today is the 1st of March 2020 and this is the 11th episode in the second season. And so today I'm going to talk about the virus that we're all dealing with, the coronavirus, COVID-19. Um, I'm going to talk about what I'm seeing in the um, media, in the, in the grand population, the worldwide population. And I'm going to see what I see a little bit. I'm going to talk about what I'm seeing a little bit more specifically as well. So uh, everything that I'm learning about the virus, I'm learning from the news. Everything I'm learning about the virus, I'm learning from journalism in some way. Um, and a lot of what I'm seeing is designed to panic people. So I'm reading about uh, stories where it says, cases soar, alarm grows. It's not if, it's when. Oh my goodness. Um, no wonder we're panicking. Um, okay, so every year we have this other virus called the flu virus. And every year... Uh, except for a year about 11 years ago, maybe 12, I think 11 years ago, um, we tend to ignore the flu virus. Um, even though, if you get on the CDC website, it says that the flu virus has killed about 10,000 people in the United States so far, uh, 19 million people have been affected, and 180,000 have been in the hospital with the flu. And this is just the United States alone. So by the time that the COVID-19 virus has killed, let's see, 10,000 people in the United States, uh, we're going to be out of our minds with panic and fear. And yet here we are sitting with 10,000 people uh, dead from the virus, and we could care less, the flu virus at least most of us, could care less. Um, we make fun of the flu virus. We talk about how we're not getting it. It always makes us sick, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then, of course, we're, we continue trying to compare the two viruses. Well, is it worse than the flu virus? Um, it's, it's, I don't know. We're, we're spending a lot of time spinning our wheels on this virus. And here's what I'm seeing. If you're trying to compare COVID-19 with the flu virus, what you're sort of doing is comparing apples and oranges. And yes, apples and oranges are both fruit, so you can compare them that way, but um, you can't really use them in the same recipes. They don't taste the same, it's, you know. There are quite a few dif dif uh, differences between COVID-19 and the flu virus, and so, the main difference that I see is that they're spread differently. Um, flu, which we're very used to, is spread through droplets. So somebody sneezes on you, uh, those little droplets are in the air, the droplets are filled with virus, that's how it's spread. COVID-19 is spread in the air. So you don't need to do anything but walk by somebody. If you breathe out while you're walking by somebody, they breathe in, and they have a good chance of getting the flu. So um, this airborne spreading makes COVID-19 much more difficult to, cont to contain. 
And we simply, in the United States at least, have no personal knowledge of airborne viruses. And this is because we use vaccines to get rid of them. So almost all of our vaccines are against airborne viruses. Uh, precisely because it's so difficult to contain them, and many of them are quite nasty. So um, anybody who's older than me, probably 55, has, at least in the United States, unless you were born somewhere else, has had almost no experience, personal experience, with airborne viruses. So when I was a kid, measles were rampant. Um, I came at the end of the polio, um, you know, polio had been a big thing in the years prior to my birth. Uh, so I, I do have a memory of airborne viruses, um, but most people have almost no experience with them. And so we tend to lose our fear of them and then you know, we, once we've lost our fear of something, we just don't care about it anymore. So why deal with it? Um, okay. Let's go into the news coverage because that's really what I want to talk about today. Um, when I read newspaper articles, I'm seeing quite a lot of information about how the virus is spreading and about how many people are dying. And then when I listen on the radio, or I'm hearing people talk on the radio somehow, or on the computer, I guess, but um, talking out loud, I'm hearing information that talks about the economic threat of the virus. And so we're talking about the downfall of, I don't know, our, our economic system and it's hard to know. Are we really afraid of the economic downfall or are we afraid of how many people could die with this virus? Uh, for me, it's hard to equate the two fears. Um, I know that I'm going to react much more personally if people I know die of this virus than um, if we're all suddenly plunged into poverty because of the virus. Um but I can see that there are some people that I would be concerned about, and that would be uh, small business owners. And I'm wondering how they're going to fare in all of this. And I'm, I don't want to talk so much about Apple. Um, I don't really care if they can't make any phones uh, and other large businesses like that. If they're suffering, it's not quite the same. So... Um, it seems that we're using Apple to, to drum up fear, but it's really the small business owners that we're concerned about, I think. I, I could be wrong, but I'm thinking that that's uh, at least on my first initial intake on that. So here's, here's what I'm seeing with journalism. Um, it's a big issue with this virus. Um, We've got journalism trying to spread panic. We've got journalism showing us 
that we should be concerned about things that we probably don't need to be concerned about. It's extremely difficult to know what's going on. And if you look back over our recent history, you can see that we in the United States are living through the destruction of our system of journalism. It began some time ago. Um, and and it, it's really been taken quite down and we don't really know what to do with that, this new era of journalism that we're in. So what, what happened to journalism? Well, in the United States today, um, United States authoritarians have figured out that the easiest way to get rid of something that they don't like is to defund it. And so they managed to defund journalism. Uh, our newspapers went away. And the newspapers that are left have troubles uh, getting enough money. And so they put themselves um, behind a barrier. Um, you know, you can only access 10 journals or 10 articles a week. Or if you're going to read this article, you have to pay us money. Um, this is because we had a destruction of our system of journalism. And so in the United States today, what we need to do is to spend some time answering the question. We need to decide what is it that we need journalism for? And I think at the core of that is, do we need journalism? I would say that we do. But we have to decide, if we're saying that we need journalism, what is it that we need it for? Because not all the journalism is necessary that we have today. So let's look at it. All right. We have this virus, and the virus is showing exponential growth. We humans have always liked exponential growth. We, indeed, we require exponential growth in many facets of our system today, in our public financial markets, in our private bank accounts, in how we watch businesses grow. Um, the system of... of um, testing our students. We always want improvement, a sustained growth in improvement. Um, we love sustained growth. But remember, back at the beginning of this podcast, in the Jupiter episode, I warned against gr sustained growth. And I warned against sustained growth because I said it was the same growth curve as a bacterial population. Well, I could have said viral population, but at the time, it didn't make as much sense because I was trying to, you, know, you can't just have a virus, uh, a, you know, a jug full of viruses. That's going to be hard. Um, but you can't have a jug full of bacteria. We've all had that in our milk sitting in the refrigerator too long. Anyway, um, the, this sustained growth pattern, whether we're talking about a financial market or a bottle full of bacteria, or somehow a bottle full of viruses. This sustained growth pattern is the same. And so um, we can see it because now the, 
the tables have been turned. And instead of us being the ones that are growing, we are watching the, the parasite coming after us. The, the growth of the, the, um, the virus is, is the one that's the sustained growth and it's coming after us. It's really frightening when the parasite is coming after you and it's growing in a sustained growth pattern. And you know that you're the host and you're being eaten up um, exponentially. So um, here's, here's what I've said before too. I'm gonna keep relating it to things that I've said before. I said that back in the day, we humans um, were being hunted and killed by predators and we didn't like it. And so we made the decision to become top predator. We, we moved out of being top predator and into the parasite. And we did that because being top predator is a singular energy. And so when each of us is trying to be the top predator and there's 8 million of us, well, 8 million top predators is really parasitic because we're all hunting and we're all living off something. Um, all right. Now what I'm seeing is instead of trying to be top predator, we're trying to be top parasite. We're trying to gain control over viruses. And we certainly have control. We have the ability to gain control over a virus. Like we can control COVID-19. We can control the flu virus, but not all of them. And we're trying to, we're searching for this way to control all viruses, but that's going to make us the top parasite. So this puts us at a crossroads. We can continue on this parasitic path that we're on, where we're living off the earth, we're imprisoning all other life forms because we're concerned about what we can eat, what we can use, who we can force with us to live, who we can force to live with us for our pleasure. Um, these are all active energies in humanity today. And we're actually searching for other life forms that we can imprison. We're talking about imprisoning um, um, insects because we've, we're running out of the ability to eat enough meat for 8 million people, 8 billion people with meat. So we need a protein source. We're going for um, insects. Which insect can we imprison to do this for us? We're, we're doing it over and over and over. We look through the world to see what we can use, make our own. Um, this is the path that we're on. And we can continue on this path. It's our right. We have the ability. But when I look down this path, it's a dead end. And uh, it's a dead end for two reasons. And um, we'll talk about that. Okay, so we're at a crossroads. One path is a dead end. The parasitic path. And the other path, the second path that's available to us, 
This is really the exciting path. However, it's a path that we have never noticed. It's been here all along, but it's always been invisible. We've never seen it. And now we're just noticing as it's becoming visible. So on the one path, controlling everything. On the second path, controlling nothing. Well, except ourselves. But we're not reaching out into the world to see what we can control in the second path. That's why it's always been invisible to us, because we've never considered not reaching out and controlling everything. And only now, as we start to realize, oh, hmm, maybe this control thing is something that we can begin to let go of. Well, then the second path comes into focus. Stop controlling. Start participating. That is the path that is becoming obvious. So this is it. Um, stop controlling. Stop, start participating. We control our food, where it comes from, how it's put together, how it's distributed. We rarely consider food and access to food as a human right. At least in the United States we do. But we should be considering food and access to food as a human right. Um, but when we think of it that way, we're, we're really only looking at our systems from one perspective, um, from the human perspective. And it is true, human beings are great, but what we're really trying to do is to be connected to the earth. And so as we ask what's a human right, we can also ask what is an earth right? And I'm using very human-centered words here, but it's a question that we need to ask, and we can begin to ask it in a very human-centered way. If a human right is something that a human needs to live on, or it, a human needs to live, period, an earth right is, what does the earth need from the humans? And that's the question. Um, what is it that the earth needs from us? And then we can have a dialogue once we can hear what we what the earth is trying to tell us. Because we, we can tell the earth back what we need. And then the earth will tell us what she needs. And so once it's a two-way energy, we'll be fine. But until we can hear what the earth is saying, what we need to be doing as human beings is mainly withdrawing. We need to be occupying less space. We need to be not occupying anything that we don't need to occupy. And so that would be withdrawing from space, withdrawing from ideas, and withdrawing from energy that we do not need. All of that. So for a long time, this second path, it's going to be a path of withdrawal. And when we look back to January 12th, I said it was going to be a, an energy of participation that was going to be born. So how can this new path be both a path of participation and of withdrawal? Well, this is, this is the path that Jupiter is asking us to go on. And since we have very few 
abilities. This is a very brand new path for us. It's really different for us to be asking of ourselves to participate in the world. And it's also really different for us as human beings to withdraw. When I've actually never seen it, not with uh, modern society, not with the United States. We do not withdraw unless we've lost. And that's how we see it. We only get out of places if, if uh, we've lost. And that's only, we see it as a very negative energy. But this isn't. This is an energy of participation. The way to participate is to withdraw. Hmm, interesting. Um, so let's look at this sustained growth a little bit further, just so you understand it, because um, we have this idea of mathematics, and we have this idea that in order to understand math, you have to go to math class, and it has to be hard, and um, although you can never say that it's hard, when Barbie said it was hard, everyone got very angry, um, but there's an understanding of mathematics that doesn't require a pencil and a paper. It just requires understanding. And this is what we're being asked of. So this thing, this, this sustained growth pattern that we find everywhere. <sighs> um, what's the opposite of sustained growth? Hmm. The opposite of sustained growth is sustained decay. <laughs> yes. We are on a path where if we turn around, we feel like we're going to die because we are going to die. The opposite of the direction that we're moving in is death. And so we think if we just keep going forward, we're going to be fine. Please don't ask us to back up because that means we're dying. Because then we're experiencing sustained decay. <sighs> okay. Uh, it's because when you're in a parasitic relationship, there's only two sides of it. There's either the parasite and then there's the host. There's only two things. So, yeah, you're either the one doing the killing or you're the one being killed. And we've decided, well, okay, we're going to be the ones that are going to kill because we are not going to be the ones that get killed. Well... Neither of these is really going anywhere. We're, it's still a death spiral, whether at the beginning of it or at the end. You're still on the same energy pathway where you're either being killed or you're the killer. So what I'm saying is take, get off that path. Don't be on that path. Take a different one. Step away. Don't, don't just turn around. Get off of it. Take another path, a second path. This second path, it's a linear path. It's not only straightforward, though. Um, that's why you can't see very far, because you can't go very far in the natural world in a lin linear path. Everything turns and twists and stops, and there's, there's nothing in a straight line. And so we don't, what we don't realize is we can't really see this path because you can go in any direction you want to in this path. Um, when you're on the flat earth, 
Do you want to go forward? Sure, go forward. Sidewards? Okay, go sidewards. You want to stay where you are for a while? Sure, stay where you are. It's all possible. We're not constrained on this second path. On the other one, um, we are constrained. We're either sustaining growth or we die. Oh, that's pretty, that's controlling. Um, either we keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger or we die. Those, uh, that, it just doesn't work. There's, there's nothing there that is actually, there's nothing there. It's, it's just those two things. Um, that's where we are. So we're at this place now where suddenly everything turned around and instead of being the parasite, we're the host and we don't like that. Okay. So let's see here. I started this, this conversation talking about journalism and how it could help us. And so getting onto the second path, the one that where we can go in any direction, but it's, it's linear, not exponential. Um, journalism can help us to get over onto that second path. Um, so we start with ourself, because this is, of course, the only place that we ever can start. And we begin to talk about journalism. And actually talking about journalism is going to give us a break from talking about Donald Trump and the virus, which is the only two things that we talk about anymore. So let's answer this question. What do we need journalism for? Okay, when you enter into this conversation, what do we need journalism for? You cannot use your same old dialogue uh, and then hope to step off of the death curve, um, you have to use a different energy because you're stepping off the beaten path. Okay, so the first thing that you have to watch out for when you're answering the question, what do we need journalism for, is watch out for your beliefs. <clears throat> so what happens if I state something and it's clearly an opinion, and this is about journalism, so what do you do if I state something that's clearly an opinion? All right, well, if you're having a belief conversation and I state something that's clearly an opinion, then you get to attack me. That's what we do. We say, you're wrong. Shut up. You don't know anything. You're an idiot. This is how we have a conversation when it's all about belief. So if you're, if you're hearing these types of statements come up in your conversation, you can just say, aha, I know this is a belief conversation. Okay, so the way that you get out of a belief conversation is to use a different energy. And the energy that we are searching for, the energy that we need to use, it's a receptive energy. So when someone says these things in a conversation that you're in, you're wrong, shut up, you don't know anything, you're an idiot. All right, then you have to either ask a question that's receptive or you can make a statement that's receptive. So I'm going to make a statement that's a receptive statement. Okay, so someone has just called me an idiot. I say, well, okay, here's what I'm interested in hearing. Um, can you describe effective journalism to me? 
And then I just have to sit and listen. Another way to make um, a receptive statement. Okay, this is it. Tell me about a time where journalism really touched you. I think we can all make, we can all enter into that fairly easily. If you remember back, there's been a time when a journalistic piece really touched you and either made you cry or changed your perspective on something. Um, I can tell you about a time that journalism really touched me. It was some years ago, I would say probably 10 years ago, um, maybe maybe nine, but I think it was 10. Uh, I was at a chaplain conference, and the keynote speaker that uh, was at this conference was someone I had never heard about, and I, hadn't, I didn't really pay them much attention beforehand. Um, it was somebody from ProPublica, and this woman told us a story about what had happened during Hurricane Katrina inside the hospitals in New Orleans. And the story that came out that she told was so compelling. Uh, Suddenly issues that I had never thought about were popping up all around me. Big questions that had no answers were suddenly looming everywhere for me. When I heard that journalist from ProPublica, tell the story from inside the hospitals during Hurricane Katrina. My world changed. That's good journalism. And I'll put a link up to this, um, what I'm talking about in ProPublica. I think I can do that on my, I I said that I was going to put up a link once before too, so I need to go back and put these links up because I'm I'm pretty sure that I can do that. and make it available on the on the um, podcast site. So, in in my world today, ten years later, I am able to hear good journalism or to read good good journalism. Also today, I don't have to work very hard to find really good journalism today, but I do have to work to find it. Um, Here's the catch. The news that is most accessible to people is not the opposite of really good journalism. And uh, in fact, the news that is the most accessible today is quite often not even true. Um, It's designed to get your beliefs up in arms. And so you read something and you get triggered, as we say today, and then you're off to fight in the arena. And you fight it out to the death with other people whose beliefs have also been triggered. And we do this every day, 24-7. We use our beliefs to fight other people's beliefs. And this does not have anything to do with really good journalism. In fact, it doesn't even have anything to do with mediocre journalism, which is... um, I'm finding out that mediocre journalism often requires that I pay for access to them. Um, They want money so that I access their mediocre uh, website. So they would say that they're doing their job and they need money. And let me just say something. Um, Needing money is not the foundation of mediocre journalism. It just isn't. 
Um, it doesn't mean that I don't care about mediocre journalism. If you were to ask me, in fact, if does that mean that I don't care about mediocre journalism, I would have to tell you that the question that you just asked me is a belief question, and it was designed to get my beliefs up and fighting. So let me define mediocre journalism for just a moment. Mediocre journalism is the middle-of-the-road journalism. It's the reporting of facts. It's just tell me what's happening. It's the day-to-day -day journalism. And is it important, this middle-of-the-road journalism? It's not the earth-shaking journalism, and it's not the untrue journalism. It's the middle-of-the-road journalism. Just the facts, ma'am. Is it important? Absolutely. Should access to day-to-day -day reporting be limited to 10 articles a month? Pay me money or else you won't get in? Um, I don't think so. Journalism, and I guess I'm asking this question instead of stating it. I, I'm better off asking it. Is journalism something that could be considered holy? And by holy, I mean essential. Is access to journalism, whether it's really good journalism or day-to-day -day journalism, is access to journalism essential to humanity? All right, let's look. On the path that we're currently on, the path of living in the penthouse, the path of always climbing the corporate ladder, the path of unequal access and unequal control. Is journalism essential for that path? Absolutely not. We do not need journalism if we are on the parasitic path, except for sensational journalism. Uh, that might be the only journalism that we need on this parasitic path. Have you heard about what Prince Harry and Princess Meghan are up to? Let me tell you, they're up to no good. <clears throat> this sensational journalism. It's a journalism of belief, of fighting and arguing. This type of journalism is essential for the parasitic growth curve. But on the other path that we're going to be hopefully stepping onto, uh, what we're going to need is a lot of information because, number one, we're not going to understand where we are. And this new path is a path of listening. Listening is really important on this path. And so we need journalism that we can listen to. And reading is somewhat what I'm saying is listening. Um, we need journalism that we can be receptive to on this new path that we need to take. So here we are in the middle of this disease outbreak and we're smack dab in the middle of the beginning of the explosion. So we're watching it. We're watching this beginning of the explosion. And we, humanity, have never been able to watch a disease outbreak like this in real time. We're learning quite a lot from being able to watch this disease outbreak. Um, those of us who have already been caught by the virus, um, we're learning other things about how it feels to be caught by a parasite. But, but for the rest of us, 
we're still in this bird's eye view position of the sustained growth that is a disease outbreak. There used to be a commercial about this sustained growth curve, and it was a commercial about shampoo. Uh, I think it was Fabergé shampoo or something like this. Um, and it was this woman, uh, obviously a blonde woman, and she would say, uh, you'll try the shampoo and you'll like it, so you'll tell two friends and she'll tell two friends and so on and so on and so on. And uh, the commercial would break into more and more pictures of this woman holding the shampoo. And interestingly, this commercial was about a news event catching fire. This commercial was about going viral. And so, of course, now we're learning about this going viral in a new way. And we see, ooh, it's uncomfortable. For a long time, I've had a picture of Jupiter in my head as an optical machine. Um, the optical machine that I'm talking about is a specific type of machine. It's one that allows the viewer to see small things really well. Uh, sort of like a, um, you know, a telescope or a microscope. Both of those let you see small things or faraway things really well. But this one, it's more... Um, everyday things that you can see just a tiny bit better. It's not a, it's not, uh, doesn't have a big magnifying lens. It's just about maybe 10 times bigger what you can see. My image of Jupiter is a stereo microscope. Uh, when I was studying biology back in the day, we used to study Drosophila. Uh, Drosophila are flies, and specifically they're fruit flies. And the fruit flies are those little tiny beings that fly around fruit, and they have red eyes, and we don't really like them. Um, Drosophila is a, a, a group of... It, it's, it's easy to study the genome, the, the DNA of Drosophila, the, the fruit flies. It's easy to access the DNA. It's easy to study. They only have four chromosomes. Um, and so scientists the world over are studying Drosophila. And the way that you study Drosophila, from my memory, is that you let the flies have sex, they lay eggs, the eggs develop into pupa, and of course you can continue letting some of the pupa develop into adults and let them have sex again. But with some of the pupa, um, you rip them open, get at their DNA, and then you can isolate the DNA in a test tube, blah, blah, blah. Um, these pupa, which are what we would call maggots, um, the pupa are small. And so you put them under the stereo microscope and suddenly you can see everything that you're doing pretty well. Um, what it does is it puts your eyes very close to the action. And so the way that you get at the DNA, as I remember it, in the Drosophila is you separate the head from the body. And I think the biggest set of DNA molecules are in the salivary glands of the pupa. And so um, you rip the head off and then the DNA kind of falls out, out, out at you and you can put it into a, um, a test tube and look at it. But when you rip the head off, it, the pupa, it kind of explodes right there in front of you. And 
of course, you're looking, I would say I was looking through the stereo microscope. And in my head, I knew that um, the action was really far away from me, that this little tiny pupa is not going to be able to get all the way to my eyes. And I'm separated from it by this machine. But when I'm looking through it, and I could see the explosion happening, I would always react like it was going to get all over my face. So I would recoil from the what I was seeing in the stereo microscope. And I would do this over and over and over again, every time recoiling like this pupa is exploding all over my face. But it really wasn't because it was happening on a small scale. Okay, so this is Jupiter. Jupiter is bringing us very close to the energy of sustained growth. And now that we're so close to it and we're watching it every day on this map, the growth map, um, which interestingly, the New York Times has taken out of their 10 article a month limit. Um, but we're able to understand by looking at this in a very close fashion. Um, and we can see how awful it is. Um, and so if we turn things around, we realize, well, sometimes we are the ones that are participating in this sustained growth. We can understand what we're actually doing by requiring sustained growth policies in our society. Do you have an improvement plan at work? Well, all the improvement plans I've seen are sustained growth policies, uh, same as the virus. Does your country or your city or your company require sustained economic growth? Um, that's a sustained growth plan. It's the same as the virus. Test scores at your child's schools, they always have to show sustained growth, same energy. There's no difference. Growth that must be sustained is viral and it's bad. We don't want it. We don't want it anywhere around us. This energy of, of uh, exponential growth, we do not want it anywhere around us. And so what we need to begin having, what we need to become are advocates. We need to begin speaking out about how this requirement for sustained growth is really the same energy as the virus just turned around. And now that we can see it from both viewpoints, we can see that it's an energy that we absolutely do not want to participate in. That is the, what we need to be saying as advocates. I would also caution against listening to sensational journalism. When it's on, turn away from it. When it's on, turn the sound down. Put up your own paywall to sensational journalism. If you end up listening to a sensational piece by accident, and then you realize afterwards, oops, that was sensational, um, go ahead and put money in a jar and make it enough money that you notice. Maybe, I don't know, 10 bucks. And then after you've listened to several... Um, sensational journalistic pieces, you'll have a nice quantity of money and you can make a donation to an under-journalized population of your choice. Because this is really 
a spiritual practice that you're engaging in? And do you need to go around telling everyone that you're engaging in this spiritual practice? No, no, you, you don't have to tell anyone. You're just pulling away from the energy of sustained growth. It, it uh, doesn't require you to say anything, actually. Um, what we're trying to do is to take sustained growth off the burner. We want the energy to dissipate. We want the energy of sustained growth to cool down. That's what, that's what we want. Don't give it your energy. Turn around. Let it cool down. All right. There's one more thing that I want to say today. I've talked about how vulnerable we humans were when we were a very young species. Very vulnerable. And I've talked about how we thought we could solve this vulnerability, and so we became predators. And what we really became were top predators. But what we didn't realize by becoming top predators, uh, the top predator is really an energy of an individual. There are very few, in general, top predators on the Earth. But now that there's 8 billion of us, 8 billion top predators, um, somewhere in there from when we moved from the individual to the 8 billion, that's where we moved uh, from being a predator to being a parasite. And so um, as we were moving from being a predator to a parasite, we began noticing that large numbers of plants and animals were dying off, becoming extinct. Because we've been talking about this for a couple of years. And now we're really noticing this die-off. Um, the diversity of life on planet Earth is becoming less diverse. And from what I'm seeing, I'm, I'm not seeing anybody really understanding what is happening. So first off, who's dying? Um, I know right now we're worried that humans are dying off with the virus, but um, that's really not going to be the case. So we don't really need to worry about that. The animals and plants that are dying off are animals and plants who live according to their own decisions, their own accord. The plants and animals that are dying off are animals who do not depend, well, and plants, are plants and animals who do not depend on others for their survival. The plants and animals that are dying off are wild. And now that a huge numbers of them are gone, it, it is in general leaving two types of planets, uh, leaving two types of plants and animals left. The two types of life forms that are left are the domesticated and the domesticators. In real estate terms, we call them domesticators and domesticates. And normally we human beings like to be the grand domesticators. We feel good when we're the grand domesticators. We feel confident. We move forward into any arena making all that we see ours. This is the energy of the domesticator. When we are the domesticator, we care nothing 
for the domesticatee. We treat the animals and the plants and the earth who houses both the animals and the plants. We treat everything any way we want to. We do not care what happens. We do not see what we are doing. We do not listen to the messages that are coming back to us from those whom we are mistreating. But now that the wild animals are gone, and they largely are, they're living in our zoos or living in some guy's basement for 25 years. That's what I was reading about. Um, wherever we're putting these plants and animals, now that there's not room for someone to live on their own accord, uh, what's really happening is that the world is becoming more pure. We're not really thinking about it that way, but it is. It's becoming more pure. Less di diverse, less diversity means more purity. And those are in authorita authoritative terms. Um, in essence, we are increasingly living in a world of parasite and host. And the earth is communicating this to us. Continue down this path where only parasite or host can live. And soon you'll find yourself as the host. That's the message. Um, these COVID-19s are going to be coming at us more and more and more frequently. And so then we try to be the top parasite, but it can't be. We can't be the top parasite. And so uh, this energy, that this path that we're on, it is indeed the path where we are going to become the host. Everything is telling us this. Death and destruction are what lies down this path. So we've got the COVID virus 19. What about 20, 21, 22, 23? What about the COVID virus 1500? What about the COVID virus 2 million? How many coronaviruses can we survive? And there's surely other viruses besides the influenza virus, the measles virus, the polio virus, the diphtheria virus, the cold virus. Oh my goodness. How many, how many viruses can we live through? And of course, some parasites are so awful that we can't even comprehend how awful. Uh, they're the ones that aren't viruses. Um, and yet we still continue to kill off everything, even that which can help us. And so I listen to astrologers talking about putting up barriers. We all talk about putting up barriers, but I talk about astrologers doing this. Um, the truth of the matter is we don't need barriers from anything or anybody who's not a parasite. You only need a barrier or a parasite against, I mean, you only need a barrier or, um, well, you only need a barrier against a parasite. That's, it's in essence, what we're looking for. We're looking for containment of the parasite. But we don't need containment of any other kind of energy, just, just the parasitic energy. And so we astrologers, we journalists, we human beings, we can stop trying to put up barriers. 
to keep the, and some, most of the time when we're putting up a barrier, we're trying to keep somebody from accessing something. We're trying to keep um, somebody from coming after us. The energy, it's, I guess I can say all this a different way. When we put up a barrier, we better know what we're putting a barrier up against. And it can't be just you, a human being. It needs to be a parasitic energy or a uh, predatorial energy. But, but just putting up barriers just to put up barriers. This is not going to get us anywhere. We need to be very specific. And it can't be about accessing um, normal uh, human rights things. There can be no barriers around human rights. There can be no barriers around what the earth needs either. The only barriers that we need to put up are the barriers around the parasite. And so let's look at this. Um, you know, if, if you have a, a parasite that's inhabiting your house, let's say, you need to clean the sheets, vacuum the hallways, apply heat sources to the nooks and crannies. Um, what we're really wanting is no bed bugs in our government. We don't want bed bugs running our schools or our hospitals or our businesses. Um, if what we're saying is that the only way for large businesses to make money is if they act as a parasite, well, that's a decision we have to make. Um, we're going to need to be able to look at what's happening and to be able to know what's parasitic, what's predatorial, and what's not. Um, and this bird's eye view function of this map, uh, it's really easy to see how looking at things from the bird's eye view, Google has this function where you can hit it and suddenly you're on street view. Well, when this bird's eye view of the map converts to street view, that's when we get sick. Um, so really what we want is to get off of this map and get on to another one. And um, the only way to do that is to see what inside of us is trying to live off of somebody else. That's our, that's our homework for, I don't know, the next several centuries, but we can begin it today. So I thank you for coming. Um, you can get a hold of me via my um, email address, governmentalastrology at gmail.com. Uh, you can get a hold of me via my website, I mean, be of my, my um, phone number, 720-608-0309. Uh, give me a call if you want to talk about this. It's kind of interesting. Um, there's, of course, a ton more to learn, and we're all in this together. And so it's, it's good for us to talk about how to move forward. So I thank you.